Welcome to The Mentor List. To turn you into the best version of you that's around. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to our CEO podcast series. Today's theme is simple, leadership. Today we have Jacob Varghese joining us, who is the CEO of Maurice Blackburn Lawyers. One of the insights that Jacob mentions is being open with others about the thoughts and feelings that are in my head. And people appreciate the opportunity to work with someone who is authentic. So very open conversation with Jacob today. We hope you enjoy today's CEO podcast series conversation with Jacob Varghese. Welcome to The Mentalist. We're here with Jacob Varghese, CEO of Maurice Blackburn. Welcome, Jacob. Good to be here, David. Well, it's great to have you on and looking forward to sort of asking you some questions and learning about your career highlights and sort of your more recent experience with 2020 and, and all the all the adventures of, of this year that we've just had. So, so, Jacob, I guess the first question is around career and just wanted to sort of ask you probably a simple question. Is how did you advance the role of CEO? I had had a career within Morris Blackburn for basically most of my working life. I joined Morris Blackburn as what used to be called an article clerk, is now just called a graduate lawyer, straight out of university. And I started off in what was our medical negligence team. And then I took a couple of years break because my wife got a job in Canberra working for the public service. So we both moved up to Canberra and I did a stint uh, working in the parliamentary library as a researcher and then I got a job working for Nicola Roxon who was then the shadow attorney general as a political advisor so that was in that time it was really interesting sort of set of experiences that I got in both of those roles that I think have served me well we ultimately moved back to Melbourne and I called up my old boss at Morris Blackburn and asked if there was any jobs going and there was in the class actions team so I came back and worked as a lawyer in the class actions team, which is where I've really built my career, ultimately progressing to principal lawyer. And then from there, I was you know, increasingly involved in different parts of the business. I took the role as the leader of what we call our social justice practice, which is the practice through which we do our pro bono work. Uh, and at the same time, also started up our domestic litigation funding business where we fund commercial clients who need cash to pursue litigation but don't have it. Often they're companies in liquidation or companies in a David and Goliath battle against some large multinational but need support to pursue the litigation. Having had that sort of breadth of experience across the firm in the medical negligence team when I started off through the class actions, litigation funding and social justice, I had increasingly gotten to know how the whole firm works together And when the previous CEO retired, I put my hand up for the role. There was a a search process involving internal and external candidates and and I was fortunately selected. So that's really my path to the CEO job. It's pretty bespoke and unique to to Maurice Blackburn. It's sort of that example. I think CEOs come from two pathways. One is a, a management pathway where they've worked their way up through management and then can apply those skills across different companies. But it's also not uncommon to have CEOs that come from within the business itself. And in my case, I was in the business on the tools rather than in management and, you know, worked my way from there. 
Yeah, fantastic. And how have you sort of, I mean, it's a common challenge for individuals who have sort of, who know the discipline and sort of rising above or, or being able to step out of the process. How did you find that sort of transition to, you know, you're no longer a lawyer, you're managing lawyers. Was that, was that sort of difficult? How did you find that? It, yeah, it was. It was a, a very steep learning curve. Uh, I thankfully had a long transition period where the previous CEO hung about for several months after I was selected. So I, I shadowed him for four or five months and, and I learned a lot through that process. I've also, you know, taken advantage of some executive coaching and done a lot of reading about leadership and management and organisational design and other things. And all of those have helped me. But there's been no doubt a lot of on-the-job learning, especially in that first year. Yeah, great. Sounds like a yeah, great period of growth for you. And just sort of in terms of the different facets or areas within, you know, a law firm, you mentioned sort of the class actions team. You went in there after some of the, I think you meant the medical where you started in straight out of uni. Is that, like, if there was a sexy side of the business, is that it, like class action? Because that sounds like, you know, the big time sort of lawsuit. To be honest, all parts of the uh, business are pretty sexy in my view. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of people have very fulfilling careers doing all sorts of things. The thing that ties us all together as a firm is we're very committed to this purpose of providing access to, to, to the system, the justice system, for ordinary Australians. You know, we've been part of a movement, probably a leader in the movement over the last century of providing legal services to, to regular folks. And a large part of that is in our personal injuries business. It's, it's sort of, you know, these days we take it as a given that if you uh, have a compensable injury, there'll be a lawyer prepared to act no win, no fee to help you get a claim. But that wasn't the situation 40 or 50 years ago. It's been because of firms like us that have done that. And that thread, I think, connects the personal injuries part to the class actions part. You know, it's more recent, about 20 years old, but it similarly is an opportunity for people to band together when they've got a common complaint to be able to match it with a defendant that might have caused the, the wrongdoing and have, a, have an opportunity to get their day in court. So I think all parts of the business are involved one way or another in that endeavour, which is making sure that that regular Australians, not just businesses and corporations, are very wealthy, not just the very disadvantaged or extremely prejudiced people who get the access to community legal centres and legal aid and other things, but to, you know, the great bulk of Australians who have problems that lawyers can help with. I think all parts of our business have done that. I've been pretty passionate about that project and so I've enjoyed really just the opportunity to work across different parts of the business and, and see how we're doing that in very different ways. Yeah, fantastic. I've, I've never sort of made the connection and it's obviously very intrinsically rewarding the out, when you get a successful outcome because you've obviously righted a wrong or I never really made that connection. It, it is extremely rewarding. I mean, when you, yeah, it's, a, it's an area of law where your client's life is very different because of the work you did. Uh, you know, if someone's had an accident and the result is they're not going to work again and you're able to get them some compensation which gives them financial and economic security that they didn't otherwise have, the course their life takes, not just their life but their kid's life, can be very different because of the work you did. So it's a very rewarding area to be working in. Okay, my next question then, you sort of alluded to some of the growth aspects around exec coaching and the extensive reading, but... Uh, this next question is just around success and what habits or habits have served you best during your career? 
Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question. I probably think more about the bad habits than the good ones. But I'd say one of my habits, which has been helpful, is that I tend to be pretty open with others about the thoughts and feelings in my head. Importantly, the feelings as well. I think it's very easy to share the thoughts in your head and most leaders can do that. But being prepared to talk about how you're feeling about things, things that are making you happy, things that are making you anxious, engenders, I think, a degree of trust with people in which they'll then tell you what they're thinking and feeling. And also I think you know, people appreciate the opportunity to work with someone who, who is authentic. I'm the kind of person that likes to talk about what's going into my head. So I don't know whether it's a, an effort, but I tend to be pretty transparent. And I think that that's been helpful. Much of the job of managing people, leading people is a job of communicating. And a large part of communicating is understanding where your audience is at. So often the content of a message gets lost because someone is feeling a particular set of feelings. They might be feeling anxious, they might be feeling overly proud or they, uh, and, and they might have a blind spot as a result or they might be feeling sad about something else that means that they're not in the moment. And I've always found that being prepared to share my own emotional state with others helps build a connection in which I get a better view of what their emotional state is so that we can then communicate effectively across that. Yeah, fantastic. Sounds like, well, you'd be able to connect on a sort of a deeper level. I hope so. I mean, I don't know how many of my colleagues will listen to this and think I'm not that good at that, but I, uh, but it's, you know, it's something I, I think I'm good at and I try to be conscious to, to do is to, to try and understand what's really going on in people's heads. Yeah, and it sort of shows a bit of vulnerability and I guess that would open up the communication. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, people can be very afraid to show vulnerability. You know, people can be very keen not to appear weak. You know, it's through understanding that we are all humans and all vulnerable that we form a kind of connection at a human level which can be way more productive than uh, just communicating as if we're robots sharing information. Okay, thanks Thanks for sharing that, um, Jacob. The next question is around strategy and just how have you consistently stayed ahead of the curve? There are two important parts to strategy, I think, right, which is the formulation of strategy and that involves you know, stuff you can read in a book, really, which is about, you know, making sure you're looking across the field at what might be coming next, taking in as much of the evidence as you can, listening to many voices about what's going on in the world so that you can start to formulate a position to respond, taking a look at where your competitors are at, all of those sorts of very basic things. I think then the second part of strategy that is in many ways as important or even more important, is the ability to communicate that strategy to others inside an organisation. Because there's no point having a strategy if it's just the CEO strategy or the senior leadership team strategy or the board strategy. The whole point of a strategy, really, I think, is to make sure that all the parts of the organisation are working in unison on those things that you have called the strategy. The strategy is about formulating a set of priorities and a direction that the organisation is going to take. And any organisation of humans involves lots of people exercising lots of discretion. You can't program everyone to act exactly according to the way you want them to act in exactly response to exactly the right input. We're not computers like that. What actually has to happen is people respond to a particular set of circumstances 
whether that's a client in front of them, whether that's a business challenge uh, or a people challenge, and they're going to have to apply discretion. So the point of strategy really is to be able to communicate across the organisation when you're applying that discretion, please try and do it in this direction. And so I feel like what's important when developing strategy is to think through that step is, is how are you going to communicate to get everyone aligned? And so you're going to have to keep it simple. You're going to have to keep it memorable. You're going to have to isolate a few principles that you say or values and so these are the principles and values that we're going to make decisions about over the next period. The values hopefully are more eternal than the next period. The principles could change over, over the period depending on what kind of challenge the business needs to face. But a lot of the job of formulating strategy is really having assessed that outside world, having assessed the capacity and situation of your organisation and determined the direction you need to bring your organisation how do you do the next important thing, which is communicate that so that all of those many, many parts of the organisation understand this is what we're all doing. Now, having said that, you know, that's easier to state than it is to do. And I would say that, you know, the thing that I think I could always do more of is more of that communication. It's always the part you think you've not done enough on. It's very easy once you've sort of formulated the strategy, put it in the can, done some sort of round of communications and say, oh, well, that's done, and then move on to business as usual. That, that's not enough. You need to be kind of communicating, discussing it, understanding the implications of it, talking through with people what it all means in practice uh, on a regular, regular basis. Fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like you're really using that communication strategy as, as an enablement, which sort of leads us into the next theme of the question around enablement and just... As a CEO, how have you embraced, whether it's technology or other forms of leverage? In 2020, in our field of professional services, if you're not leveraging technology, then you're losing. It's sort of as simple as that. I mean, technology is pretty uh, critical. So in the three years that I've been CEO, I've mostly been focused on building the capacity of the organisation to make strategic decisions about how we deploy technology and then execute. And so that's actually been a large focus of what I've been trying to do is that we had a history of having grown very, very fast. If you think back 15 years, you may not have heard of Morris Blackburn, you now would have heard of Morris Blackburn. We grew very, very fast, but we did it in, in such a way as, you know, we had a lot of different business units growing quickly, but the result of that was it was very hard to make joined up decisions about the technology investments that we need to make to get us ready for the next step. A lot of what I've been focused on in relation to technology is doing the organisational development work necessary to enable us to make those good decisions and then execute them on an enterprise-wide level. And so there's been bits and pieces of that that have been very important. And actually, the COVID crisis has sort of demonstrated how important that work was. Three years ago, you know, one of the things I championed very urgently when I became CEO was that we needed to have all of our files done digitally. Lawyers can be slow to adopt to new technology and we had in large chunks of the firm huge amounts of client matters where the master record of the client's file was still paper-based and there was a huge amount of effort to bring people along, get used to working in a digital environment. But, geez, we had no idea what was coming. I mean, we sort of got started just in time so that by the time the pandemic ha happened, most of our work had been transitioned to digital and that's just been a lifesaver uh, over this time. So my view is that, uh, that leveraging technology is, is critical. Then the question is how do you do that? 
And, and a lot of it is about getting in the capability. A lot of it's getting in the right staff in the digital technology area who can make decisions. A lot of it is forming governance structures in the firm that can allow for sensible, strategic, enterprise-wide decisions to be made rather than decisions that are only focused on the, the smaller business units, all of that sort of stuff. As far as I'm concerned, we're only beginning our journey in this regard. The success of the firm will be defined by our success in digitising as much of our client experience and service offering as we can. So that's on the digital side. In terms of enabling in other respects, one of the really important pieces is, and I know everyone will say this, but everyone says it because it's true, is people. I mean, ultimately, an organisation, as I keep saying, is not made up of robots, it's made up of people. You can't succeed any more than you can leverage your people. So that's a combination, that involves a combination of getting the right people, but also training them and making an attractive environment for them to work in, making sure that people are engaged in the work, that they're all aligned to the purpose and the strategy but also that they are balanced enough in their own lives that they're capable of making good decisions. You know, you don't want your people to be overworked. You don't want them to be resentful. You don't want them to not have the external stimulus that comes from pursuing hobbies or spending time with family and all of those things that help refresh the brain and feed the brain so that when they're engaged in work, they're doing the best work they can. Thanks for sharing that, Jacob. That sort of puts us to it to our last question. It's just around execution, and we've sort of alluded to it, I guess, in the strategy and sort of the enablement piece around maybe people or how you're you're executing. But what are some of the lasting changes you're you're seeing as a result of? So let me ask that again. What are some of the lasting changes you see to your operating model as a result of 2020? At one level, I want to provide a hedged answer, which is it's too early to tell because we're still living in it. You know, I keep reminding people that we're not looking at post-COVID anytime soon. We're looking at COVID normal and COVID normal is not normal. You know, it's a little bit too soon to, to be focused on how do we work in the real post-COVID environment when we're really focused on how do we really work in COVID normal. And, and, and to be honest, in Victoria in particular, but we're, we're dealing with this in other states as well, adapting to COVID normal is it's not as full on a challenge as adapting to a lockdown environment, but it is still a challenge. It's not, you know, we, we now have experience of pre-COVID, we have experience of extreme lockdowns, and, and we're only now learning what, what does the middle look like? How do we navigate that in a way that keeps our employees and clients safe, but makes the best use of the freedoms that we now have? That's a bit of a hedge dancer. On the, on the other side, what I've been saying inside the organisation is that I don't think COVID has changed anything about the way we work. What it's done is given us a preview of what was always going to happen. And if we're smart, we'll, we'll use the fact that we had that preview to bring it on sooner. So I think, broadly speaking, our ability as an organisation of 1,100 people to get work done when almost all of those people are working from home was way better than I would have anticipated, like shockingly better. If I knew on the 1st of March or the 15th of March what I now know, I would have had a lot less sleepless nights in the end of March, right? But our ability to uh, for people to work digitally, for work to be done by video conference, for client matters to progress, 
has all been, you know, superlative. You know, that's a huge insight that I wouldn't have had and that uh, many of our leaders wouldn't have had, which should allow us to provide way more flexibility to our employees going forward uh, and also to our clients going forward. You know, we should be in a position to be much more imaginative about the kinds of relationship mix that people have between working in an office and working at home, seeing clients in the office versus seeing clients by video conference in the comfort of their own home and all of those sorts of things. So I really do believe that all of that stuff was inevitable. You know, we were going to get there by 2025, 2026 anyway. Now we should be getting there by 2022, 2023. That's what will happen for us in our particular neck of the woods. You know, the other thing to keep in mind about COVID is we're very aware that there are a lot of Australians and a lot of businesses that are doing it tough. Not of the, we're, we're really fortunate as office space workers, information workers, that modern technology allows us to get our work done. And we're really aware that a lot of our clients will be employees or small business owners who, who are doing it tough. And so in the, in the medium term, our biggest concern is how do we be there for them and how do we make sure that we're providing them with access to the legal services that they need over this time? Yeah, great. Well, I mean, it it, it does sort of paint a picture of it's almost brought the future forward, I, I guess, sort of in your non-hedged answer there. Um, but, yeah, it's great to sort of see your perspective. I mean, the, the one thing as well is I, I don't want to create too much of a rosy picture of working at home. While the business worked, I think a lot of a lot of our employees had a pretty rough time too. So, you know, by no means do we want to make that lockdown normal the normal. Less to do with maybe their work life, but, you know, especially in Victoria when uh, childcare was closed, a lot of our employees, including me, <laughs> were doing it pretty rough. You know, I had to get a lot of my work done in abridged hours while I was responsible for, for looking after my little one for long parts of the day and many of our employees were. So, so we've learnt the limits of flexibility too. <laughs> Uh, we don't want to put people in positions like that. But, but we've certainly learned a lot of lessons about what's possible that I think the change management on would have been a lot longer process. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you, Joseph, for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing sort of these timely insights off the back of 2020 and, and your career sort of journey and, and success habits and sort of views on strategy and enablement. So really appreciate your time today and thanks for sharing with the listeners. No worries. Thanks, David. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.